Real Podcast. We delve into the subjects that don't get talked about enough in society. And one of the topics that's still considered third rail is women's fertility, even as the birth rate in Canada has dropped to a record low. My guest on the podcast today writes a lot about this issue, and she recently published a fascinating piece on South Korea, which has the lowest fertility rate in the world. Anna-Louis Sussman is an award-winning journalist who reports on gender, economics, reproduction, and health. Her recent piece for The Atlantic is titled, The Real Reason South Koreans Aren't Having Babies. Anna-Louis Sussman is my guest today on Lean Out. Anna, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. It's so nice to have you on. I've, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. I think it's such important work that you're doing. Um, you're writing, you've been writing about gender economics, uh, reproduction and health for some time now. And you've explored the issue of fertility for a number of outlets, including the New York Times, in a Sunday review piece titled The End of Babies. I really encourage everyone to read it. It does such a good job of showing the complexity of this issue. And your recent piece for The Atlantic is about South Korea, which has the lowest birth rate in the world. Now, this is also a complicated story, number of factors at play here, but set this up for us. What are the broad strokes of what's going on in South Korea? So as you said, it has the lowest fertility rate in the world. And I think whenever um, you have a country or a place that's at the extreme, it's worth looking and seeing what's going on there. You know, there are a number of things that will sound familiar to people listening, you know, in, in uh, wealthier industrialized countries. There's a, um, in Seoul in particular, it's very high cost of housing. Korea has a very competitive educational culture where a lot of parents feel they have to pay for cram schools and that gets really expensive. It's also um, not very fun to go through. So if you listen to young people who've just come out of that system, you know, they they talk about not wanting to subject a child to that too. But, you know, I think one thing that's been sort of underexplored is just how relations between women and men have kind of deteriorated. And I don't think that's actually unique to South Korea. I think one thing that made me want to learn more about what was going on there was, um, you know, there's other sort of metrics you can use to investigate, you know, the, the kind of divergence in values between women and men. So, for example, the gender voting gap, which we have, you know, in the U.S., um, and I remember I was doing some reporting in Poland uh, in 2019, and a poll came out while I was there that showed young men and young women, so I believe this was a poll of people in their 20s, um, were really gravitating towards quite different political parties. So the men were going towards more conservative and even far-right parties, and women were increasingly um, saying they favored green parties or more progressive parties. And I remember seeing that and just thinking, you know, that that's not going to bode well for dating, you know, for, <laughs> they're going to go on a date and realize they hold, you know, perhaps very different views of gender roles or of the role of the state in society or whatever. And, and you know, that that just might not make for compatibility and relationships, you know, where they want to, for example, raise a kid with certain values that they share. So I thought maybe this is you know, something happening globally. And in South Korea, I was reading uh, news coverage that just indicated this was quite extreme there. So I wanted to learn more about it because it's also a 
very challenging thing to address from a policy perspective and you know not something that is easy to to address in a in a short term um context either mhm and it's it is so interesting and and in the piece you you point out that it was actually hard to find men to speak to you about this trend um so let's talk a little bit about the women that you spoke to um and start there what were you hearing from the women that you interviewed so i spoke to a lot of women mostly in their 20s and 30s some called themselves feminists some were radical feminists who um i was doing another story for a different um publication about a movement called 4B or it's also called the four nos so it's women who are saying no to dating men to sexual relationships with men to marriage and to childbirth so those women naturally were more you could say extreme or radical in their feminism and their attitudes towards men they can they basically considered korean men almost like irredeemably misogynist and, you know, they didn't want to engage with them at all. But then I met other women who, even if they didn't call themselves feminist, you know, they might say, yeah, just not really worth dating. Or I I think a Korean guy would want me to stay home and, you know, I've got my career and that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound appealing to me. So um, there was a broad range of um, sort of attitudes and reactions, but I didn't meet a lot of people who were dreaming of marriage and childbirth. That was not uh, a sentiment that was widely shared. And I think I think I talked to seven guys and 31 women. That's just sort of formal interviews. I had other kind of informal conversations with a lot of people. But yeah, formal interviews, it was about four to four and a half times as many. Um, women as as men um and you know there was one professor who he teaches at a law and at a medical faculties and he had asked some of his students if they would talk to me and none, none of them said they would speak to me but they also told him you know how they were feeling about gender relations and again they expressed a lot of mistrust and you know just not a lack of enthusiasm for dating or meeting women they thought that women wanted them to pay for things. And there were still these expectations of them to be breadwinners. And they weren't sure that, you know, what exactly they were getting in exchange. They thought women might want them to buy them a home, but then maybe they wouldn't stay home and raise kids there. They also wanted to work. So there just seemed to be a mismatch in terms of expectations and goals among women and men. Um, And then, you know, the women that I talked to, like I said, they were there was just such a broad range of reactions, but it, a lot of it boiled down to it. I'm, I don't think I need a man in my life, and I'm not sure there's a Korean guy out there for me. You also spoke to a Yale doctoral student about this situation in South Korea, and, and they referred to it as a crisis of heterosexuality. So just pulling back, you had referred to the idea that this is not just South Korea, that this is happening all over the world. I know you're very interested in the global context. Talk to me a little bit about signs elsewhere in the world that you're seeing of this dynamic. I mean, I think, you know, I'll speak to, to the U.S. because that's a context I know best. I Well, I live in New York City and I've lived in um, a few other places in, in the U.S. And I hear from a lot of women that they just find dating really challenging. Um, I hear that from some close guy friends too, 
So I'm, I'm not, you know, I wish I knew there was, I wish I knew of a way to explain this exactly. Like people have proposed, you know, online dating makes people very disposable. I mean, I certainly felt that way when I was trying online dating, but I don't know, the, the behavior of people towards each other just seems to lack basic sort of respect and courtesy and manners. Um, I don't know if it's better in queer dating. I, I was at a writing retreat or a, I guess, yeah, artist residency kind of thing last year. And I remember talking with another heterosexual woman about it. And we were saying how abysmal our online dating experiences had been. And then an, a non-binary um, theater artist there said, you know, I, I've had great experiences online when I, you know, she, they were more in the queer non-binary space. They said, I'm, I mean, really cool people. Are you kidding? And I thought, okay, maybe it is a, a heterosexuality thing. I, I, who, it's, it's really hard to put your fingers on why this is. Um, I know that some, there's interesting sociological research. There's a book coming out by the Yale scholar, Marsha Inhorn about egg freezing and, you know, her finding interviewing about with a, with a co-author interviewing about 150 women in the U S and in Israel is that women freeze their eggs, not because of their career ambitions, but because of the challenges of finding a partner or sometimes they're partnered, but the partner doesn't want to commit or isn't sure about whether or not they want to have kids. And so, you know, women seem to be choosing egg freezing in order to cope with this, uh, you know, general challenge of, of dating and finding the right person. Mm. And and there are also material conditions at play here, um, economic conditions. I'd like to quote from your New York Times piece, a, a really striking paragraph. So I'll read it in full. Our current version of global capitalism, one from which few countries and individuals are able to opt out, has generated shocking wealth for some and precarity for many more. These economic conditions generate social conditions inimical to starting families. Our work weeks are longer and our wages are lower, leaving us less time and money to meet, court, and fall in love. Our increasingly winner-take-all economies require that children get intensive parenting and costly educations, creating rising anxiety around what sort of life a would-be parent might provide. A lifetime of messaging directs us toward other pursuits instead, education, work, and travel. Let's talk about some of these confluence of factors, other factors, um, in rich countries where fertility has been dropping for decades. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak to my own experience here. You know, I think I should first say that what I outlined there doesn't apply to everyone. You know, there are people who can look past a lot of those pressures and decide that, no, family life is much more important than taking a trip here or there, or, um, you know, they don't feel the need to send their kid to a certain school for whatever reason. So I don't want to pretend that that's universal. Plenty of people still have kids and prioritize family life over some of these other things. But I think if you, you know, are spend time in like a big city, I mean, I'm in New York, which is probably the most competitive most sort of career focused, you know, the sort of cliche that you sit down next to someone at dinner and they say, so what do you do? You know, and everything is very much about your professional accomplishments. I mean, that that's the water in which I swim. But I I have myself a, a lot of privileges. I mean, I went to good universities and I'm a skilled worker. And yet when I was thinking about becoming a parent, it felt really daunting to me. I mean, even just 
the cost of childcare in the U.S. is, you know, it's as much as someone's salary. Um, it could well, and if you're paying a nanny, it is someone's entire salary because because they they need to support themselves on that. But even just day daycare can be forty thousand dollars a year, which again that that is as much as a lot of people make. So you know, there there's uh, a lot of economic factors at work, and I think that. From a policy perspective, that's really low-hanging fruit. You know, I, one of my closest friends is Norwegian, and the ease with which she has transitioned in and out of early parenthood. She's had three kids, and she's also had a steady, really interesting career trajectory that's been upward, you know, all the way. The interruptions have been minimal, even though she gets a year off or nine, nine months or a year off um, for, for each kid. So there's things that we could do, you know, in terms of making parenthood just feel much more accessible on an economic basis. But that doesn't leave that that still leaves some of the attitudinal things as well as the um the social aspect of, you know, whether or not you can partner with someone or or, or meet someone you like. So there's a lot of things working sort of together at once and I don't envy policymakers who are trying trying to address it, but I I also think you know there's like the president in Korea who's ran on an anti-feminist platform. There's definitely things you can do that don't help, you know. <laughs> and I I do think that politicians, well, not just in Korea, I guess Brazil might be another place. Um, you know, there's a lot of places where people use gender politics to get votes, and you know, that that's not going to help things. Um, if, if you know, easing gender relations or moving towards egalitarianism is your goal, making political hay on a sort of platform of machismo obviously doesn't help. Mm. And there was two other factors I, I wanted to just dive into briefly. One is excessive workism. So I certainly think about my 30s. Um, oh. I'm in my 40s now, you know, in my 30s, mm-hmm. I was working so hard, pushing so hard in my career. And, and the idea of finding a partner and uh, getting married and having children all at the same time as you're in your kind of biggest time in your career. It just concentrates so many life events in your early Mm -hmm. 30s. The other issue I wanted to ask you about was this sort of spiritual malaise, something you've touched on in the past in your work, specifically the pitfalls of having this sort of limitless freedom. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit to both of those factors? Sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I'd call it a spiritual malaise. I guess when I think about it, it's more a question of values and priorities. I think we really, there's a lot of emphasis in our society on freedom and traveling and, you know, hashtag van life and being a digital nomad and racking up experiences. I mean, if you've ever done online dating, people write how many countries they've been to in this weird trophy hunting kind of way. And, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of emphasis on that versus you know, having obligations to others or being tied down, you know, and and not really understanding the richness and the fulfillment that comes from being really interconnected with other people and owing them something and being there for them and times that they need you and and vice versa. So I think there's definitely um, some recalibration, you know, in terms of values that we we might do. Um, And in terms of the workism, I mean, that's obviously... um, Again, there's some sort of cultures, countries, companies, uh, you know, I mentioned New York City that, you know, very competitive, like definitely some places where that's emphasized more more than other places. You know, I'll say in my own case as well, yeah, my 30s felt like 
I was finally coming into my own professionally. I found like topics that I really enjoyed covering and getting opportunities to, to write about them. And same time, um, journalism pays so pitifully that I was also doing a lot of client work at the same time. So it was almost like I had two jobs and that just, you know, on its own, on its face, didn't leave a lot of time um, for pursuing a personal life. That said, what I think, again, this is my own experience and I, it, it's not something I recommend. I found myself, as also because I'm self-employed, and so you're really on your own clock. You know, I think for people who've had experience, whether it's at school or at work, where there's a relationship between the amount of effort you put in and the output or the outcome, you know, I would say in work, it's really obvious, like if I spend a few more hours on a story, usually add something, I, you know, if I'm researching, I find out something important or interesting or if I do a few more interviews, you know, that adds more um, layers and depth to a story. Or if I'm doing client work, you know, if I spend a night working on something and uh, I'll get money for it, you know. Um, and what I found was that with dating, that relationship between the amount of effort put in and the outcome, you know, it breaks down because it, a lot of that is a matter of luck. Um, and so it made it harder for me to prioritize that as a way to spend my time because I felt like, well, I could go on a date every night and maybe it would just lead to nothing and it would feel like a waste of time. But, you know, that's not really a way to live, you know, to be sort of thinking of your time so pragmatically and putting a a dollar figure on it or, you know, valuing it in that way, um, I don't think is super healthy. You know, it's also, I have a lot of really close friends and I really enjoy spending time with them. That also makes it harder to sort of gamble away your free time on some sort of dubious, I don't know, <laughs> prospect from a dating app. But um, but again, I, I I don't think that's healthy. And I think it ref- reflects a kind of mindset of scarcity and that there's never enough time. And, you know, I think a lot of people feel put upon or they do feel that, that there aren't enough hours in the day. And so that's, you know, another thing that I wish... Um, you know, that we did feel more of a sense of abundance in terms of time and our ability to connect with people. Mm-hmm. It's, such, it's such a good point. And, and this really is such a personal conversation for us as women, for you, for me. Um, Canada's birth rate has hit a record low. Uh, Canadian public policy think tank Cardis and uh, Lyman Stone, a demographer I know you've interviewed in the past, recently did research that showed that half of Canadian women uh, roughly half are having less children than they want. Um, I just went to a panel Cardis hosted on this in Ottawa, and I'd count myself in that half. I did not end up having children, and I, I am sad about that. And this is a personal issue for you as well. Um, talk to me a little bit about how your own personal experiences influence your journalism on this. A lot of my thinking around this topic started when I froze my eggs when I was 34, so I'm now 41. and um thinking about okay i have these eggs now theoretically they're there to make a baby um so then what what does that look like if i do want to have that baby like what needs to be in place uh what sort of resources do i need you know as i mentioned childcare in new york city is $40,000 a year for full time daycare for an infant so you know some that money has to come from somewhere if i want to continue working Alternatively, I need to have savings to li- live off of if I'm, you know, for example, take time off, care care for 
a child myself. And as I said earlier, you know, I'm someone who has a lot more going for me uh, materially in terms of opportunities, professional opportunities, earning power, et cetera, than, than other people. And, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to understand why everything feels stacked against having a kid. So from there, I started thinking about reproduction, you know, as an interdisciplinary um, idea that, as you said, brings together economic questions, sociology, uh, medical anthropology, I mean, there's really incredible work on fertility and fertility technologies that's coming out. And of course, um, on the health and scientific aspect, there's just really interesting medical advances being made that bring up all kinds of ethical questions. So, you know, starting from my personal experience, I was able to just tap into really interesting lines of academic work, um, meet really interesting people, clinicians, practitioners, of course, talking to patients and also just regular people who are struggling with these questions. You know, I think the fact that I'd written, um, you know, a little bit about my personal experience and that I'd gone, for example, through egg freezing, you know, I think talking to people, there was a certain sense that I understood, you know, on some level what they were going through. And I just had really amazing conversations over the years um, for the book and for different stories about, you know, what people are thinking about and how they you know, perceive of their opportunities to to have family today. Mm. And I'm I'm so curious. I mean, uh, I'm a lifelong feminist. I was certainly raised in a you know progressive household, but the whole issue of fertility did cause me to become a little bit disillusioned. Um, and I made a documentary about this with the current iteration of feminism. Certainly not the let's get rid of domestic violence and mm-hmm. let's vote and all that. Let's have jobs feminism, but. But the the feminism that says we can have it all, that feels so unrealistic under neoliberal economics, and also the the sort of extreme online, like drink male tears kind of exaggerated form of feminism as well. I wonder what your thoughts. How how has reporting on on fertility impacted how you see feminism? I mean, I think the you know feminists who i most admire like a lot of the people in the reproductive justice movement you know their their feminism has always been really interdisciplinary and intersectional you know they the re- reproductive justice definition is the right to parent or not parent you know to have children or not have children to parent your children in a safe and healthy environment and so that's a much more holistic version of feminism than like hashtag having it all um, which is actually a running joke that my my Norwegian best friend and I always use whenever you know she's having a melt. One of her kids is having a meltdown, and you know the, there's some big professional. You know she's got a conference to attend the next day. We always say hashtag having it all. Um, but you know I, I think at this point for like more thoughtful feminists that that's more of a caricature of uh, yeah, or you could call it girl boss. Feminism, whereas um, yeah, I think a lot of people recognize that um, redistribution or you know just a more fair economy is a feminist issue. You know that social services and community support are feminist issues or part of family building and reproductive justice. Obviously, access to medical care. You know, I mean, the fertility stuff is really complex. It's always been intertwined with what scholars call like selective pronatalism or you know stratified reproduction in the sense that they are accessible for some people but not others or encouraged for some some people and not others 
you know, certain family types or certain ethnic groups. So, you know, that that stuff is really tricky. And I don't think that the access or the availability of those services are necessarily distributed in a fair feminist manner. And, you know, feminists are full of critiques of, of the fertility industry, too, and the way that it, you know, sets women up as consumers or, you know, subjects their bodies to certain things. Or, um, But, you know, I, I do think egg freezing is potentially a liberatory technology. I mean, it does, you know, if you're choosing it, you're not just being sort of duped with an Instagram ad, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's really how women operate. I don't, I don't think they see an ad for it on Instagram and think, yeah, I'll just, I'll just undergo this really invasive procedure on a whim. Um, So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's it. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of investment going into a lot of these companies. So, you know, that's always worth keeping an eye on when when you're you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into certain companies. Um, you know, it, it is good to to just keep a close eye on how they're operating and and what the consumer experience, patient experience is ultimately at the end of that. But yeah, I think, you know, the the feminism that I espouse or that I admire is 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 a lot more interdisciplinary and a lot more focused on a sort of holistic way of thinking about the well-being of people and families and communities. Mm. And just lastly, Anna, you refer in your Atlantic piece to the issue of trust. And as you put it, the capacity to believe that tomorrow will be better than today and that our fellow citizens are working to make it so. Can we just spend a moment on how we might begin to restore that trust, particularly between men and women? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say you might want to spend less time online. You know, I think that if you walk around, like if I walk around New York, the people I interact with, women and men, are, you know, typically much friendlier than the ones I see on Twitter just screaming at each other or saying saying obnoxious things. And um, so I think staying away from online debates might be one way to do that because especially in Korea. They're really outspoken, um, quite nasty online communities, both of, um, you mentioned like the drink male tears feminism. I mean, that is a, a big part of the online feminism in Korea. And it was very intentional. It was using some of these trolling trolling tactics and rhetorical tactics um, against men because these women were just so sick of how nasty the men were being. And then there's online, very misogynistic communities you know, and I, I interviewed one woman who became radicalized because she did a research project on these online uh, misogynistic communities. And she was just so horrified by what she saw that she really felt it would be difficult to ever trust men again. Um, I mean, of course, she's, she's close to her father and her dad is a nice, supportive guy. But, you know, she she was really disillusioned by that. You know, whereas the Korean men that I interacted with, you know, they held the door or they were totally nice. So they gave me directions. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't feel I was encountering that vitriolic hatred, you know, on the street or in the day to day. And that's the same in my life here. I guess it's very simplistic, but just, um, you know, I, I know that my, my closest male friends don't live in New York city. A lot of them are live in other cities and you know, I wish I could just spend more time with them and be reminded of the men in my life who I do really care about. So I think, you know, actively cultivating those 
connections um, because it doesn't make sense to write off an entire group of people. I mean, people are individuals and I think it's, you know, easy to talk in reductive terms. I mean, obviously our politics are so polarized and we say Republicans, you know, in the U.S. context, Republicans versus Democrats and, um, you know, none of that helps. So I think the more you can interact with people qua, you know, individuals and um, see past all these labels, that really helps. Well, that is a great place to leave it. I've uh, I've really enjoyed taking a deep dive into your work. I know you're writing a book right now. I'll be definitely watching for that. And Anna, thank you so much for coming on today. Great. Thank you for having me, Tara. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.